Good morning again. If I've not had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of serving as the senior pastor as well as one of the elders here. And we are really excited that you came to worship with us today. Tell you what, as a pastor, there's a lot of fun things I get to do. And one of those is I get invited into the lives of people. Um, Sometimes it's on joyous occasions and sometimes it's on the most difficult of occasions. But either way, I get included into a family that I wouldn't know otherwise. And so um, really, honestly, isn't that what a church family is all about? Like we are called to be a family together. And sometimes that family is the folks that are here uh, and live here and they're part of our church. And then sometimes it's their extended family that lives in other places. And this morning, about three or four families came in that live in other cities, but they were coming in to celebrate a birthday or hang out with their family. And as they came in, I was able to hug them and say hello to them, catch up with them, see how things are going. It's always good when God's family comes together. And so that's why we celebrate what it means to be a church body. That's why we're having today, this afternoon, uh, a new member class. If you are not a member of our church, but you would like to know what that might look like and what that involves, and you don't have to make a decision today, you just come check it out and see what it's about, we've got a new member class. It's happening after the service. If, if you've turned in the reservation, great. If you haven't, that's great too. We've got a spot for you. It'll be happening uh, after the service, about 10 minutes after the service is over with. It'll be upstairs in room 205. We've got some food and we've got some child care and all of that. So just um, plan to be a part of that. We would love for you to, to jump in and be a part of our church family in that regard. Another thing I'm really excited about, I hope you saw on the video, did you see it? We are having a senior adult or a 60 plus or whatever you want to call it. If you're 60 years old or older, you are invited to a lunch that is exclusively for you. And it's happening after the service on March the 10th. We're planning a few of these during the course of the year, but the first one's going to be on March 10th. So if you're 60 or older, please come be a part of that. If you need a ride, if you're at home worshiping right now and you need a ride to get here and a ride home, we will make that happen. Church family, if you're under 60 and you would like to help with that, make food, serve food, be a part of it, then you can. If you're 60 or more, you can't help serve. You have to just eat and hang out and have a good time, all right? You'll be getting more information about that. I'm super excited about that. All right, when you came in, hopefully you picked up a worship guide. On the back of the worship guide, there's a place where you can take notes. If you were here last week, you know that we jumped into the book of Micah. We looked at all of one verse last week. This week, we're going to look at more verses, and we're going to be in the book of Micah. It's in the Old Testament. If you don't know for sure where it is, because it's a real small book, you can go to your table of contents in your Bible. You can find it there. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles that's near you, under a chair or around you. Use that Bible. If you need one, feel free to take that home. That'll be a gift from us to you. Another thing you will need, if you don't already have it, and hopefully you brought it with you, is this little reference guide. I was talking to my friend Melissa before the service, and she used the same word I did. When I put this together, I actually called it a cheat sheet. So I love the fact that we can have a cheat sheet that helps guide us. If you do not have one and you would like one, we've got a few handy. Just simply raise your hand. Some deacons are in this room, and they'll drop you some cards off. There's a few hands around. Just kind of keep your hand up till you get a card. Keep passing them out until you run out. And if you don't get one, we'll get you one uh, next week or later this week or maybe even after the service we can print some more. These cheat sheets, I would encourage you to put right inside your Bible, put it with the, um, with the Bible you bring on Sunday morning, the book of Micah, and have it handy. You can utilize it um, whenever we uh, come together. All right, 
It's designed for you to kind of be reminded of some of the central themes, some of the timeline issues, some of the verbiage and all of that nomenclature that would be a benefit to you. I hope we have enough cards. If we don't, I promise you we'll get you one, all right? So here we go. <clears throat> I would encourage you to have your worship guide handy to take notes, your cheat sheet, and the Word of God with you so that you can kind of follow along. Last week, like I said, we started this new series on Micah. Um, and if you were not here, I'd encourage you to go back and watch the sermon online. You can go to our website. You can watch the sermons online in the archive section uh, because I think that that will be very important for you to understand the, the flow of the whole series. Before we jump in, though, I want to hit a few introductory type things. Some things we covered last week, maybe, but the majority of them we don't. There's some additional things I need to share with you, okay? It's going to be real quick, and that is... We have a general time frame idea on your cheat sheet. There's some ideas of when this was written, okay? But when you get into the book itself, it's not like you look at it and go, oh, okay, that's when this king was writing. Oh, that's when this king was writing. Oh, that's this year. Oh, it's that year. Most of it, you won't necessarily know when it was written, what the exact situation was. You just have the general broad time frame, okay? As we go through, I might point through, hey, this might be happening here, but it's not even necessarily written in chronological order. Okay, so don't think necessarily everything that's written at the front happens before everything at the back. It's just kind of a collection of the prophecies of God through his instrument, Moses. Uh, sorry, not Moses, Micah, that's the word. As we said last week, God is the source of this message, and Micah is the deliverer of that message. And as such, as we read through it, there'll be times where you're going, wait a minute, I'm confused. Is this Micah talking or is this God talking? And the answer is kind of yes, because God's talking the whole thing, and Micah's speaking on behalf of God, and sometimes he's quoting God directly, and sometimes you're not even sure. It's just all God's word, right? Okay, so then another thing you need to know is this. Like many other places in the prophets, there is a feel at times, and today it will be that way, where we are in a courtroom or we're in a trial. There's a situation where God is kind of a, a, a convening his court to have a few words. And then the last thing I want to point out is this. Actually, next last is parallelism. I don't know if you know what parallelism is or not, but parallelism, think about parallel. You know, they go side by side, right? And so a parallelism is a portion of Hebrew or a use of Hebrew poetry that, that is utilized in many different places. The Psalms have it, Proverbs has it, any of this wisdom literature will have it, and even the prophets. Perhaps if you've got your Bible open, look at it, and more than likely, I'm going to hold up mine, more than likely yours looks something like this, if you can see it, where it's not line to line, edge to edge, margin to margin. It's kind of written in poetic form, okay? You'll read it and you'll go, that doesn't look like poetry to me. There's no rhyming, there's no anything like that. It's Hebrew poetry, not English or American poetry. All right, parallelism. Parallelism means oftentimes one line is stated and a second comes right behind it and they say the same thing. They just use different verbiage. Sometimes the second line really accentuates what the first line says. Sometimes it expands what the first line says. Sometimes it says the opposite of what the first line says, but there's some form of parallelism where you almost have to read the first line with the second line to understand what it's saying. Hopefully that all makes sense, all right? And then one more thing, and then we'll read the text. Um, a reminder, the original audience, it's on your cheat sheet, the original audience is Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria represents the northern kingdom, which is sometimes called Israel or Ephraim, 
and Jerusalem represents the southern kingdom, which is usually called Judah. All right, now we're to Micah. Micah chapter 1. We're going to read verses 2 through 7, but we're going to read it in chunks. We're going to start by just looking at verses 2 and 3. Here's what it says. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. I want you to look at the word here, H-E-A-R, the first word in verse 2. In the book of Micah, there are three different, um, different, well, what word did I use on my uh, thing? I said units. At the top of the cheat sheet, there are three units of Micah. The first one starts in Micah chapter 1, verse 2, the second one in chapter 3, the third one in chapter 6. At the beginning of each of those units, the word you here is there. The word in Hebrew would be Shema. I don't know if you've ever heard the word Shema or not. Shema means hear, but it means even a little bit more than that. In fact, you may have heard the word Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is one of the most famous verses that Jewish people will quote. And it says in it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It starts with the word hear. Whenever you see the word hear like this with Shema, it demands you pay attention. And not only that you hear it with your ears, but that you actually obey and heed what it says. It's not just, I'm going to tell you a story. Like, you have to listen. This is big news. So in verse 2, it says, hear. Who are the ones to hear? Who is God addressing? It says, peoples, all of you, O earth, all that is in it. Those are all forms of parallelism that basically says, I'm speaking to the nations of the earth. Hear me when I say this. All of you, the nations. He's speaking to the nations. And then he says that he's calling them to a trial. Look at verse 2. It says he's going to be a witness against the nations, all of the earth. It's saying I am bringing court into order, and God is interesting in many ways. And one way is God is the witness, he's the plaintiff, he's the judge, he's in charge entirely. And he says, nations, I have a beef with you. I've got some witnessing that I'm going to share against you. Listen up. Also notice in verse 2, the word all is used. The word all is used twice. He's saying, I am the universal judge and king and God of the universe. There is no other God but him. And the reason that's important is because in that day and age, there was a feeling that each little culture, each little tribe, each little nation, each little people group would have their little special God. And they would hold on to their special God. You may have Baal, we may have Molech, we may have Asherah, we may have different gods. And you worship yours and I worship mine. And God says, guys, those gods are all fake. They're all false. There is only one God. I am that God. I am not just the God of the Hebrew people. I'm not just the God of Judah and Israel. I am the God of it all. I am sovereign. I'm in charge. I am holy. I am to be worshiped. He is God. He is not God of the United States. 
He is not God. Thank you for that amen. He is God for the whole world. All right, so we see that. The other thing we see that accentuates that, in the ESV, it says, let the Lord God. The phrase, let the Lord God. Lord God. It's two words, and in the Hebrew, it would be in this order. It's Adonai Yahweh. You know it? Have you heard the word Adonai? We talked about Yahweh last week. Adonai is A-D-A, sorry, A-D-O-N-A-I is how you would transliterate it into English. And when you have that phrase, Adonai Yahweh, it's pointing to the fact that he is supreme. He is all-powerful. There is divine sovereignty in him. He is alone to be worshipped. So here it is. The creator of the universe steps out and says, guys, I'm calling you all peoples everywhere. Hear my voice. Not only hear me, but heed to what I'm about to tell you. This is for the entire planet to hear. Okay? Original audience. Samaria, Jerusalem. Yet God in his courtroom calls the nations to pay attention. All right? So we need to see that, that that's what's happening. Now I want you to see a parallel. There's parallelism in verse 2 already that I didn't really take the time to unpack because we'd be here all day if we looked at all the parallelism one at a time. But at the end of verse 2 and the beginning of verse 3, there is a phrase about the Lord coming from his holy temple, that's verse 2, and that he's coming out of his place, which is found in 3. So his holy temple and his place are the same thing. And you may be going, oh, holy temple, I got it, I got it. He's in Jerusalem. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. Nope. Right here, this is the temple in his throne room in heaven. It is where he is, where he resides, where he reigns over everything. His holy temple, his place, where he is king and where he is judge. And he makes a verdict. And he says, guys, I've got a verdict. We're going to read that verdict in a minute. I've got a verdict, and I'm going to share it with you. And you're not necessarily going to like it, but you need to hear it. And I'm stepping out. He is leaving, if you will, heaven and coming to earth to make it clear what his judgment is. A little phrase that you may or may not have heard before I'm going to throw out there real quick. Don't have time to unpack it entirely. I said the word unpack two or three times already. It's kind of my catchphrase today. Theophany, T-H-E-O, Theo, T-H-E-O, Phany, P-H-A-N-Y. That's one word, theophany. Theophany simply means the appearance of God. And, And it can mean, in some ways, if you go back to like Abraham, when God appears to him and is warning him, I'm about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, it says the Lord appeared to him, and yet he's walking on the planet, he's looking like a human, because God, this is kind of crazy, pre-incarnate Jesus shows up on the scene, okay? So in this theophany, it's like God's like, I am about to step out of the throne room. I'm still Lord. I'm still in charge. I'm coming down. Don't make me come down there. And yet he's about to come down there, right? Okay. So he's about to bring judgment. I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure about now, Jerusalem and Samaria are standing on their chair, chairs and they are screaming at the top of their lungs. Yes! The nations deserve this. God is coming down and he's going to judge the nations. Finally, they're going to give what's coming their way. All right? That's kind of where we're at. That's what I think is happening anyway. That's what I think is happening. So, let's look at another portion of this and then we'll go to verse 4. In verse 3, 
it says he's coming down to tread upon the high places of the earth. High places here can have a couple of connotations. One would be high elevation, like a mountain. The other connotation could be a high place that is used in reference to where the people would go to worship. And typically when they went to the high places, they were worshiping other gods and or they were incorrectly worshiping the one true God, okay? And so he's saying, I'm stamping out all these false places of worship. Let's look at verse 4. It says, and the mountains will tremble, oh, sorry, the mountains will melt under him. Talking about Yahweh. The mountains will melt under God and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down from a steep place. Again, we have parallelism here and it shows us an amazing picture of God's holiness, God's majesty, God's splendor, and also his impending judgment. Earlier we sang a lot of songs about God's holiness. Micah here uses quite poetic language to describe the impact of God's holiness on all of creation. When creation sees God, it trembles. It responds because God is all-powerful and all-glorious. How sad it is. How sad it is that creation sees the splendor of God and responds and we as people even those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus see his splendor and we yawn and say ho-hum I've seen this before and heard it before Jesus talks about if we don't worship him the very rocks will cry out so that's what we have I could take time to kind of look at each of those phrases, but you see how the world just kind of recoils in response to God's holiness. So here is my question for you in this section. I have one question right here. If God's inanimate creation is so responsive to God and who he is, why is it that we who are created in his image are so slow to properly respond to him? All right, so we've got the stage set. God's coming down. He wants the nations to hear him. He's got a beef with them. He's got a witness against them. He's coming out of his throne room. He's stepping down onto the earth, if you will. And the creation responds, now let's see what it's all about. Why is this happening? And then verse 5. God is now saying, you need to hear actually where judgment is coming. Verse 5. All this, everything that's been explained, the reason he's responding the way that he is, the reason he's coming down, the reason he has a witness is this, for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? There's all kinds of phrases here that are actually on your cheat sheet that will remind you what they all stand for. But what I want us to see before we look closely at it is verse 5 is a proverbial kick in the teeth. Jerusalem and Samaria were thinking that God's calling attention to the nations because he's about to judge the nations and they're kind of giddy over that. And then all of a sudden God says, it's not the nations that I'm judging right now. Who I'm judging is actually my people. And I'm judging Jerusalem and Samaria. And I'm doing that because of your sin. 
So it's a smash in the face, if you will. They're shocked and they're off guard, but they really shouldn't be because they've been sinning against God, and that's why judgment is coming. Now let's look at the beginning of verse 5. You can divide it in lots of different ways. I'm kind of dividing it into three phrases. And so the first portion of 5, not the first half, but kind of the first third, talks about Jacob and the house of Israel. Israel is a bit confusing when it's used in Micah. At times, Israel is used to mention the northern kingdom. At times, Israel is used to mention all of God's people of all 12 tribes, which includes the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, okay? So right here, this use of Jacob and Israel is the same word because the Old Testament patriarch, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel, which is why the nation is called Israel. So when it says Jacob and it says Israel, it's talking about all of it, north, south, Judah, um, Israel, Jerusalem, Samaria, it's all of it. All of God's people have sinned against God and they are getting judged for it. Let's look at the word transgression. Transgression here carries with it rebellion and revolt. God has set a standard. He has a covenant with them and they've broken the covenant with him. And then it uses the word sins. It's similar to transgression, but not quite the same. Sin carries with it not meeting the standard that God has set, not keeping up with the stipulations of the covenant. And so here we see that the people of God had sinned against God, both north and south, both Jerusalem and Samaria. Then we see specifically them listed in the second part and the third part of verse 5. It says, what's the transgression of Jacob? It's Samaria. And then he uses this interesting phrase, what is the high place of Judah? It's not Jerusalem. And they're like, uh, oh, like that's talking about the temple. Actually, it says high place, which is a negative word. He's saying, you are not worshiping me either in Samaria or Jerusalem. The people of Samaria and Jerusalem, the leaders, if you will, are leading you astray. They're leading you to worship other gods. They're not leading you to be faithful to me and you will receive judgment because of it. Guys, if you have any influence on others, make sure you're using that influence to point them to Jesus and not away from him. These leaders, these religious leaders, government officials, other leaders of the city were supposed to be leading the people to God. They were leading them in the opposite direction. Guys, if you're influenced by those who are leading you falsely, you're just as guilty if you don't obey God as if they were leading you well. In other words, you can't say, well, the leaders led me astray. No, that's a fact, but you're also responsible for your actions. So here they are. They're going to face judgment, okay? The leaders had led the people into idolatry. We'll see that in a moment. And to sin, and they had led the people in rebellion against God. So now, we're going to read the last two verses and then look at the outline a little bit closely. These next two verses, they shift the focus to Samaria. But he wants Judah to listen, because after we finish these two verses and get into next week, the rest of the book points to Judah, all right? He wants them to learn from Samaria. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Notice that kind of the narration changes here. Micah's been talking, and now these are the words of God because it says, I, and it's referencing God. It says, therefore, I, God's talking, will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations, all her carved images, if you wonder what a carved image is, look at the parallel on the next part, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols, carved image is an idol, and all her idols I will lay waste. 
For from the fee of a prostitute, we'll get to that word in a moment, she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. All right. So let's consider what this is saying and then figure out the principles that we can learn that are found there on your outline. There's a complete and utter destruction of Samaria and Israel that's about to take place. And it's about to take place for her her idolatry. We don't know for a fact, but more than likely this was written a year or two or three or maybe a handful of years before the year 722. If you look at your cheat sheet, 722 is when um, Samaria was overcome by Assyria. I want you to notice something. Assyria is not mentioned in this passage at all. God chooses to use Assyria to bring punishment and judgment, but it's his judgment, not Assyria's judgment. In other words, Assyria is just a tool that God uses. This judgment's coming from him. And so what we see here is that destruction is coming to Samaria for their sins. And what is the cause of, well, before I get to that, notice it says that they're going to be leveled. It's just going to be a heap of, uh, just a pile. Like this is good for nothing but to have agricultural land. It says that your foundations, your walls, your stones will be destroyed. It'll be leveled. There'll be nothing left. So why is that? Why is that? At the end of the verse 7, it talks about prostitutes and the fee of prostitutes. There's a lot of different ways that we can look at this. Perhaps part of their sin is they're worshiping false gods and using temple prostitutes along the way. Perhaps they're using the money they paid the prostitutes to actually build up their temple stuff. And then when it gets leveled, the Assyrians are going to take those and then use that money on prostitutes. There's a level of that. But what we really see here is that without a doubt, the word prostitution and God's people and covenant go in hand in hand. When God's people don't follow God's covenant, then we are prostituting ourselves out figuratively to other gods. What does prostitution cause a married person to do? It causes them to step out of the boundaries of marriage. It causes infidelity, or it is infidelity, I should say, right? And so whenever God's people are not faithful to him and committed to him and we're chasing other women, if you will, other gods, then it's like we are in prostitution. Does that all make sense? If you don't know what I mean, go read the book of Hosea and you will be blown away as it talks about that. He's saying your idolatry is disgusting to me. You've been unfaithful to me. And if you worship anything or anyone besides me, the true God, you're experiencing the worst infidelity that there is. Before I jump at the outline, and don't worry, we're going to flow through it because you're going to already see the principles as we've already talked about it. But before I do that, let me share a couple things real quick. One of the things we said that in the book of, of Micah, does anybody remember what the name Micah means? It's on your cheat sheet. Say it out loud. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Yahweh? And we said how we're going to see throughout the book of Micah who God is. So what we've read thus far today, we see a few things about who God is. Here's some principles theologically true about who God is. He is judge over all. He is sovereign over all. He is king of the universe. He is transcendent. Transcendent means he is above us. At the same time, we see he is imminent, he is with us. He's holy, he's powerful, he's majestic. All of these theological principles about who God is. Based on those truths, 
Let's see what he says about sin. The first point on your outline, again, don't worry, we're almost through with the sermon. We're just going to look now briefly at this outline. Number one says this, God does not overlook sin. Did you see Howard do that illustration a moment ago? He said, her friend saw that he had that weight. I hope it wasn't a real weight. I hope it was like not really heavy. Maybe it was, I don't know. And the friend warned, don't drop it on my friend because it will hurt her. So when God sees sin, he has to step out and do something about it. God does not overlook sin. Sin's an offense to him. Sin is a rebellion against him. Sin is unfaithfulness and infidelity towards him. He cannot turn a blind eye. What kind of marriage would you be in if your spouse stepped out on you and had infidelity and you turned a blind eye? I'm not saying whether you work through it and give forgiveness and restore the marriage. I'm just saying they're cheating on you and you could care less. It doesn't happen, guys. God can't turn a blind eye to sin. His holiness won't allow it. All sin must be addressed. And the reality is all sin must be addressed among the nations and among his people. So if you're like, oh my goodness, I can't wait. God doesn't overlook sin. Oh my goodness, I know somebody in my life. I'm waiting for them, for God's going to judge that person. I wouldn't worry about others. Are, Are you seeing the judgment that's coming your way because of sin in your life? Because God doesn't overlook sin. I'm not saying we don't care about the sin of others. I'm not saying we don't speak up and try to lovingly redirect people. I'm saying we don't celebrate when somebody's about to get, get, uh, you know, God's bringing judgment on them. Because the reality is God judges all sin. He doesn't overlook any of it. So God came down and was active in judging sin. I'm going to ask a couple of questions here. I want you to be sure and at least think through them, if not write them down. Because I don't want you to overlook sin in your life. If God doesn't overlook sin, he sees it, not to get you, not to be the cosmic killjoy, but because he loves you and he wants the best for you. Are you willing to see the sin in your life and respond to it? Here's the questions. All right, I know that was a question, but that's not what I had written down, so here it is. What sins are you overlooking in your life? God doesn't overlook sin. Why do we overlook sin in our life? What sin is currently in your life that you are overlooking? And you're like, Alan, I'm overlooking it so I don't see it. No, the reality is you know it's there. What are you trying to overlook? Now, here's the deal, guys. I'm not doing this so we all feel guilty and like horrible, despicable people. We walk out this door with our head hung. We're like, I'm the worst sinner there is. I'm not asking that. I'm saying, where's the Holy Spirit saying to you right now as I'm talking about this? You have overlooked this sin for far too long. You need to address it. So what sin are you overlooking in your life? And then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent of it today? Will you repent of that sin? right now like maybe even for a moment stop listening to me will you there in your seat address the sin that you know you've been overlooking and repent of that sin god doesn't overlook sin we shouldn't overlook sin either so if god doesn't overlook it what does he do it's there on your outline he addresses sin head on he addresses sin 
head on. He acts against sin. And at times, listen to this, this is interesting. At times, he even uses idolatrous nations to bring judgment on his idolatrous people. So here's Assyria, they're an idolatrous nation, and yet God used them to bring his judgment. But the reality is he's still using his plan to judge or address sin head on. I said a moment ago, most likely this was written just prior to 722 when Samaria is overrun and overtaken by Assyria. It talks about how all the idols will be broken down and destroyed and, and, and taken down, right? God will smash all idols. Whether the year is 722 B.C. or whether the year is 2024 A.D., Guys, I don't know if you realize this or not, but some of the sins that you and I are overlooking are idols in our lives. You don't have a carved image. You don't have a head of lettuce in your living room that you worship, but you have something that you're putting ahead of God. You have something that you're stepping out of a faithful walk with Jesus to follow instead of Jesus. And because God addresses sin head on, that idol in your life is going to come crumbling down. Are you going to allow it to crumble down before the judgment comes your way? In other words, in repentance? Or is it going to crumble down when God's judgment comes down upon you? God doesn't play around with sin he addresses it head on. In our lives, all too often we ignore sin and try to sweep it under a rug. But instead of doing that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, God wants us to address sin head on in our lives. Here's the questions that I have for you. Since God addresses sin head on, will you, and here's the question, will you confess sin in your life? We talked about that a moment ago, but will you confess sin in your life and then through the power of the Holy Spirit, turn the opposite direction? See, that's what repentance is. Repentance isn't, oh, I got my hand caught in the cookie jar. I'm sorry, God. And then go live your life however you want to. No, repentance is confessing sin and turning the opposite direction. Of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's another question with that. How is God asking you to turn the opposite direction? Perhaps this morning you need to come and share with me a sin you're confessing. Perhaps this morning you need to come and pray at the altar and confess it and repent. Perhaps you have a D group you're a part of, and this week when you get together with your D group, you need to confess that sin and repent and have their accountability. Could be your Bible study group. Could be your hope group. You need a plan to address the sin in your life head on. The next statement on your outline. God brings complete judgment on sin look down in verse 7 is this talking about the prostitution that's happening is it talking about the destruction that's happening it says in verse 7 three different times the word all in other words it's complete there's nothing no one that escapes god's judgment and that judgment is both here and now and then ultimately in eternity. For those who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus as their Savior, that judgment will be complete, total, utter destruction in a horrible place called hell. 
You may want to jot this down. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but it's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. The writer of Hebrews in 9, 27, and by the way, you may want to write down 28. I'm about to reference 28 also. In verse 27, he says something to the effect of, all of us will die, and then comes judgment. God brings complete, total, utter, total judgment on sin. And so here's my question for you. What idol is in your life that needs to be totally beaten to pieces? I chose to use beaten to pieces because that's the verbiage that's found in verse 7. It says that God's going to take care of all carved images and all idols. He'll lay them to waste. And the words that he used at the beginning of verse 7 is that all carved images shall be beaten to pieces. Guys, you and I need to take a baseball bat or a sledgehammer and the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives and beat the idols in our lives down. We can't do it on our own. The Holy Spirit does that. He does it through his people that are a part of our lives. But what idol is in your life, name it, that needs to be totally beaten to pieces? Along those same lines, is there anything, another way to think of it, is there anything in your life that has stolen your faithfulness to God? <clears throat> Every week when I get ready to preach, I send my sermon notes to Ricky so she can put it on the sermon guide. I sent it to Eric so he can think through the sermon, uh, the music selection. And I sent it to Howard so he can plan his children's chat. So I sent him Micah 1, 2 through 7. He goes, well, this is going to be a cheery children's chat. I mean, read all the notes. I mean, here are the notes. The notes are God doesn't overlook sin. I mean, that's not too bad, right? But then he addresses it head on. He brings complete judgment. Like, we don't want to talk about these things. Like, these are downer notes, right? But the reality is this, and I've got it at the bottom of your outline, because even though it's not in Micah 1, 2 through 7, it's in Micah, and we will see it over and over and over again, and it's in God's Word. The reason we have this message, the reason we hear what sin does and how it's an offense to God is because God has an answer for us. And that is, even though all those things are true, but there is still hope. Let me maybe say that again, because maybe y'all fell asleep or whatever. There is still hope hope. Don't forget what the recurring theme of Micah is. Look at the bottom of your cheat sheet. The recurring theme is this, indictment for sin. We just read about it this morning, right? Secondly, a call to repentance. It's not clear cut here that he's calling for repentance because he's like bringing judgment, but it will be in other places in Micah. The third one is judgment of God's enemies. We've seen that. And the fourth one, over and over again, healing and restoration for those who repent. Amen. Praise God. Ultimately, that's pointing to Jesus. You see, Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He is the ultimate theophany, God in the flesh. He appeared. He took on flesh, dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life, did not sin, doesn't receive any judgment from God for his sins, and yet he willingly took on the wrath of God and suffered our judgment on our behalf as he died on the cross. But not only did he die on the cross three days later, he was raised to life, overcoming sin, the, the grave, and death. And so in the outline today, we said God doesn't overlook sin. 
So payment has to be made. Either Jesus is paid on our behalf, which he has, and we receive it, or we pay on our own. Jesus paid a price that we cannot pay. He lived a perfect life, and therefore his death is a substitute for ours. The next thing on the outline was that he addresses it head on. He did that by sending Jesus to die for our sins. He brings complete judgment. But thank God Jesus paid by his death for it all. I want you to mark down Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28. Because even though it says that upon death comes judgment, Hebrews 9 28 points to the fact that Jesus Christ delivers us from judgment when we've placed our faith and our trust in him. That, my friend, is good news. Christ brings salvation. And there's no eternal judgment for those who've trusted in him. So as we get ready to respond i've got a couple of questions would you put your hope in christ today would you put your hope in christ for salvation would you put your hope in christ for following with baptism would you put your hope in christ for life in general would you put your hope in christ for repenting of that sin would you put your hope in christ for the beating down of the idols that are in your life would you put your hope in christ to just walk through the chaos that this life brings couple of the friends that came in today from two different families that I know the reason I know them so well is because I walked with them through through the valley of the shadow of death as we lost loved ones in our church family and I know that it's in these times that the hope of Christ is what sustains us but at the same time I know that it's the hope of Christ that sustains us in our daily lives whether it's the good moments or the bad moments it's the hope of Christ that will cause us to respond today. Don't walk out this door going, oh my goodness, God wants to judge sin. I hope I don't get... Hear the message as it applies to you. Respond as God leads you. Say yes to him today. I'll be available down front in just a moment. We're going to sing two songs. The second song, Offering Place, will be passed. You can drop your giving envelope there. You can turn in your connection card. You can mark down spiritual decisions on that as well. I'll be available at the front if you'd like to come pray with me. If you want to come pray at the altar with a friend or someone, do that. Let's say yes to him this morning. Put your hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning learning again from this book, learning from Micah that judgment of sin is real, but then being reminded that hope is found in Jesus Christ. God, I pray this morning that we wouldn't just walk out of here having learned something about a historically accurate book, but that we would walk out of this place having been convinced by the Holy Spirit and convicted by the Holy Spirit to respond. Reveal those hidden sins in our lives that we might repent of those, confess those, turn from those in the power of the Holy Spirit to follow you more closely, to share that with others that might hold us accountable. Help us to say yes to you, to follow you for salvation. Help us say yes to you in your leading in various areas of our lives. May we not walk out of this place in the power of our own strength, because there is none, but may we walk out in the power of the Holy Spirit and his work in and through us by what Jesus has done on our behalf. Father, I pray that you would bring healing and wholeness and restoration and confession this morning. God, may we not walk out of this room continuing to hide the sin in our life, but may we 
respond to you today. God, it's our desire that we would not experience your judgment, but that we would experience your restoration. And we know that only comes by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, and repentance of sin. So break us today of this sin in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? I'll be available here at the front if you'd like to come pray. Follow as the Lord leads you.